When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. All right, now I'm recording for YouTube if we want to put it up there too. So complicated, people. So complicated. All right, speaking of complicated, so you guys saw the piece I did on that whole Bakersfield urgent care doctor controversy. So let me recap it real quick and fill in a little of the blanks here. So there was this video that two urgent care docs did uh, in Bakersfield. They had a press conference and they wanted to present the data that they'd accumulated from doing, I don't know, 5,000 COVID-19 tests, presumably the nasopharyngeal swab test. And they called this press conference, it lasted an hour. I watched the whole video at like 2X speed because, you know, and it was fascinating, it struck me on several levels. So, and again, this is my elephant, this is my like unconscious reaction right away, was like, hey, we got a couple of practicing clinicians out in the world here who are gonna tell it like it is. Like, this is what they're seeing, let's see what's going on. And, and as I watched, I was progressively more struck with horror. Because actually, see, I'm on their side. I actually do think that we need to do some conscious opening of the economy, and because, because the, Costs of this are, are potentially outweighing the benefits of the extreme lockdown. In other words, some opening judiciously done is actually probably the correct answer. And we'll talk about Sweden's experience during this show. And we'll also talk about mental health and suicide among healthcare professionals, because that came up in the news as well during this show. So actually, my, for lack of a better term, my political elephant was saying, hey, yeah, I think it's time to strike a balance. So I was aligned with them going in thinking, okay, here we go, until they started talking about the science. And every single sort of scientific piece of training that I've had, which, you know, I'm not an epidemiologist, I'm an MD, just like them, started to tingle. Uh, first of all, there were appeals to authority. We study this for a living. We study microbiology and immunology. We do this, that, and the other thing. Okay, let's be very clear. They are MD physicians who practice emergency medicine, urgent care. That doesn't make you a world expert on microbiology, immunology, or all that, although you have the tools to look at the data critically. That's what a medical education will do for you, right? So. Immediately, the sort of appeal to authority was concerning to me while they were simultaneously saying, well, the authorities actually don't know what they're doing because they're not actually touching patients. Okay, fine. We got a little bit triggered by that, and I'm telling you what my biases are. So then they continue and start talking about, well, okay, we tested this many people, and the 
positive positivity rate in the people that we tested was this and therefore extrapolating to the population of California, the mortality level is this. Okay, already they've just, it just shows they have no idea what they're doing with statistics. And there was a really good piece that I linked to in my on my website version of the video that I did that kind of goes through and debunks all the terrible science that they're talking about. So at this point, I'm like, oh dear, they're, they're, bringing together and confusing case fatality rate, which means people who present to you get tested and then get sick or die, versus infectious fatality rate, which is, well, what about all the infections out there that we're not testing? Because the problem is when you use those numbers, that is not a random sampling of the population. That's a sampling of the population who had symptoms or is coming in concerned about symptoms. That's a very different population. That is highly, highly enriched in people that are gonna test positive relative to the random population in theory, right? In theory for this disease. So you can't make that extrapolation. So that was one major issue. The other major issue was saying things like, well, by keeping people at home, you're weakening their immune system. We build the building blocks of our immune system, our exposure to, yeah, okay, that's all true. Except that I don't know how many of us live in a home that's hermetically sealed and clean, like completely disinfected, because that's what it would take to weaken your immune system. So, and, and in the same show, they say, well, you know, all the plastic you're bringing in from Costco is covered with COVID. So they sabotage their own argument right there. And then the other thing that triggered me to go, huh, <laughs> among other things that we won't get into in this show, was then you start to see that their own political bias which again, I said, to some degree I share because you know, as a moderate, I'm like, you know, we might be overdoing it on the, the liberty versus oppression piece here. They say, oh, you know, uh, why is it that they're, you know, they're having us overcount COVID cases and you know, put COVID on the death certificates and stuff like that, hmm, what's going on? And you know, anybody who says that they're trying to keep you safe, that's just trying to control you. He said that at the end and you're like, okay. So now we're into the conspiracy world, we're into the whole like, you know, it's a whole thing. So at that point, their credibility was shot and they started by saying, hey, we run into these urgent cares, we're small business people, we're being, you know, our volume is down. So then they put their financial bias right up front and said, well, we're losing money. So immediately you have to be suspect then of anything they're saying. So in my video, when I said these two clowns from Bakersfield, I freaking meant it because it, they showed us that they have no business trying to pretend they're experts about this. They could have actually done that very, very differently. They could have said, here's our data, here's what we think and we believe, and we think local opening of communities uh, is probably smart. And the reason is, and they gave some great reasons in the video, like, you know, more domestic abuse because they're seeing it, right? This I sympathized with a lot more child abuse, more domestic abuse, more mental illness, more suicide attempts, because humans are social pack creatures and we've told them you can't go outside. And I get it, man. I'm with them on that. There are, there's a degree of bending the curve, which we've talked about on this show, which helps prevent the Real goal is to prevent overwhelm of the healthcare system so that you don't ratchet up deaths from other things. Like healthcare system's overwhelmed, well now you can't take care of COVID, you also can't take care of myocardial infarction, you can't take care of strokes, you can't take care of little Timmy broke his femur. Well, what have we done? 
We've actually terrified people so much that they won't go to a hospital even when they have those things. We've shut down so much that we have successfully bent the curve. No doubt about it. These measures work. And by the way, these two clowns in Bakersfield, and I'm doubling down on that word, are victims of what they call the prevention paradox. That means that, oh, we did all these very intense measures, telling people to stay home, closing schools, stopping large public gatherings, closing restaurants and businesses. And then we go, look, nothing happened. We overreacted. Guys, to some degree, those measures are successful. And that's why you're seeing that. Um, now, they made extrapolations from their data saying this is as deadly as flu, if not less so, but in the same breath, they say it's more contagious than flu, which means even if it had the same fatality rate as flu, if it's more contagious, more people will die. So there were tons of flaws um, in their reasoning. But the truth is what they're saying about the other suffering that's being generated by going too intense and too long on lockdowns is real. So you have to weigh a balance. And that was the point of that video is the truth is somewhere in between, but you have to rationally look at everything. Now, here I am in the Bay Area, which has one of the more draconian lockdown measures. Man, our hospitals are basically at 50% capacity. Um, people are gonna get furloughed. Like already Stanford and UCSF, I mean, they're talking about healthcare staff losing jobs. So economically, it's gonna affect the very people that you need to be staffed up to be ready for phase two and three when the second and third waves come, which they will, because this is an infection. You cannot deny the simple math of that, but you can, you can have a conversation where you say, okay, that's the science of it. Here's the economics of it. Here's the legality of it. Here's, you can have that conversation, and I think that should appeal to conservatives, it should appeal to libertarians, it should appeal to liberals, it should appeal to anyone with half an effing brain, that all those people need to be at the table when we're making these decisions, because if you just listen to the scientists, A, you will cower in fear because we don't have the ability to process statistics and risk properly as humans. It's very hard unless you're trained in it. So the scientists will say, your risk of dying is 2%, and you think that's the end of the world. Whereas in reality, when you look at the absolute risk, you know, it's not that bad. So cowering in, in fear is going to bias us. Now, we did the correct thing, shutting everything down at first, because there was so many unknowns. Our models were confused, and the worst case models, which the um, government listened to, the Imperial College models, said that if you do nothing, potentially millions will die. Now, you could say, well, the model was wrong, but we don't know because we did something. We didn't do nothing. We shut down to varying degrees. And you can look at the New York experience, which was more intense than the San Francisco experience, and go, well, we shut down earlier. So yeah, the curve got bent. But the thing is, how much do you want to bend it? Because this is where we get to the transition to Sweden. How much do you want to bend it? And what's the goal of bending it? And what's the exit strategy? Now, we've talked about exit strategy before. If we were really good, we would bend the curve down so low that transmission, the reproductive number, the r naught meaning every person who's infected then infects less than one person and the thing starts to peter out. Now, the minute you release the lockdown, it starts to spin back up because people go out and mix again and the reproductive number, the r naught, goes back up. So you, you, you can't eradicate the virus that way unless you're developing enough immunity in the community, the so-called herd immunity, but that's gonna require 
60 plus percent, uh, 50 to 60 plus percent of people actually being infected and then developing antibodies and then hopefully being an immune, which we don't 100% know happens yet. That still kind of needs to be studied better. We assume that it does, but we don't know for sure. So if you bend the curve that low, one exit strategy, which I've talked about before, is then you spin up contact tracing, quarantining of infected people and their contacts, which means you need to aggressively and often electronically trace people with their phones using apps and technology like that in order to follow, okay, if you test positive, who did you come in contact with that might be at risk? Everybody's got a 14-day quarantine now. And you could actually then theoretically do what Singapore and Hong Kong and, and others have done where you really squeeze it down. Now, the problem with that is this horse is out of the barn to the degree that I've, I don't think we have the capacity in the US. It's been pretty clear that it's just bungled. Certain communities might have it, but others don't. And so being able to eradicate it that way through contact tracing is gonna be really, really tough. So then your second option is get a vaccine or effective treatments. Well, remdesivir is still being studied, Gilead, some prelim data coming out. I'm gonna wait until I see the data myself to say anything about it. Um, so we don't know about treatments. We know that a vaccine is complicated and harder than you think, which we've talked about on the show. So let's say those are 18 months, probably longer away, which means, well, then the other option is allow the curve to bend, but not so far that you're not actually infecting people in the community that are least at risk of dying. That means younger people, people without comorbidities. So you protect the nursing homes, you protect our elderly with comorbidities as much as you can, which means shelter in place at home, but you allow other people to start slowly going back to work, you consider reopening schools, and you spin that up so that the people who can most tolerate it, now there will be some people who die in that, but we're gonna talk about that. Um, you allow the people that can most tolerate it to develop immunity, which then protects by proxy the people who are most vulnerable. Now that's theoretically possible. We do it artificially with vaccines. We, in, we inject people with vaccines so that we can develop enough herd immunity that way so that you don't have to get measles to be immune because getting measles comes with a risk of death or disability, which you don't wanna tolerate in a child. Um, and so you, that's an approach, but that means that you don't bend that curve so far that people just don't get infected at all. First of all, it might be unrealistic. Second of all, you will destroy the economy. You will create a loneliness epidemic that's worse than anything we've seen. You will start seeing mental illness, abuse, and other things, and the ravages of having no money for people, not just on the margins, but middle-class people, and you'll destroy the healthcare sector. So you have to, you have to think about these things. And those guys were right about that. Wrong about the science, right about that. So that's what I wanted to make sure we really understood. So what I, I think what we need to do, and I've talked about this through multiple videos, we need to do antibody testing in the community to see how prevalent it is so we can understand how much of this is we're overestimating how fatal it is. Hmm. I think it's still gonna be considerably more fatal than flu. And how much of this is our measures are working? And then let's find the balance where we open up carefully and locally. So 
Maybe Bakersfield can open up. New York has to do it more carefully because of the density and the fact that the reproductive number, the R-naught in New York is gonna be higher because people pack into subways, they're closer knit, there's more travel, so you have to keep a travel ban, those kind of things. There's so many nuances here to how you do it. But the bottom line is, guys, it's doable. Now, let's get back to risk. Remember I said, if you allow herd immunity to develop, in the natural population of younger, healthier people, say, without comorbidities, you will still have deaths because we know from the New York experience and elsewhere that young people can still get this and can still die. Scott Weingart talked about that on my show. Now, that's when you have to say, okay, so how much risk as a society are we willing to tolerate and what are what are the downsides of not tolerating the risk? What's the risk of of shutting down. Well, every day we drive to work, we take the risk of dying. Every year, about 50% of adults don't get a flu shot. And they take the risk of dying of influenza or giving it to someone that is gonna die of it. We take those risks every single day, knowing that this is just the background risk of being alive. Why would COVID-19 be different in a population that's relatively low risk? Now, you can understand why it'd be different for a population that has a mortality of 5 or 10%, like an older comorbid population. But we really have to think and understand risk in a younger population. So that's a very important calculus when we're deciding how and when and where to open back up sequentially. Now, this is a more, in my mind, of course I'm biased, is a more rational way to think about opening up than holding a press conference, pulling out bullshit data, extrapolating it wrong, showing your political and financial bias up front, and then appealing to the authority that you know everything about microbiology and immunology, and Fauci is a goon who's never touched a patient in 25 years. That, that is the wrong way to do it, no matter what your political persuasion is, unless you're a crazy person on the left or the right, you're gonna say stupid stuff like that. All right. That being said, let's look at Sweden. So Sweden is an interesting story because this has been very politicized too. Like people who wanna open up say, look at Sweden, they, they're not doing a lockdown and they're doing just fine. And then people on the left are like, no, actually Sweden is, is um, experiencing excess mortality. They're actually suffering the consequences of what they're doing. Well. Let's talk about what's really going on because the truth is, as always, somewhere in the middle. Sweden decided with their scientific um, stat, their you know, epidemiologist and leaders early on to say, okay, we are gonna do a voluntary social distancing, tell people, listen, you know, it probably makes sense to do some social distancing, no big gatherings more than 50 people, and schools and stuff should consider remote learning, right? But we're not gonna edict any of this. And what happened is the Swedish actually did really decrease their mobility. You know, according to, to data from Google Maps and things like that, public transit is down like 50%, people moving around are down like 20%. So it's not a wide open situation, it's a voluntary. People just automatically titrate their level of exposure to what they feel is appropriate and what their risk is. Now. Um, then you have to test and measure and see what's going on. Now, the problem is when you, you wanna compare to a similar population, look at neighboring Norway. 
Norway took a different approach. They took a more aggressive sort of top-down lockdown approach. Now, by the way, the Swedish approach is very popular with its citizens, and it turns out its citizens have a high level of trust in government, which good luck with that in this country, right? So the other thing that's interesting about Sweden's demographics is that there are many, many, many Swedish households with just one person in them. So social distancing is almost built in to some degree, more so than certain other countries. So you always have to look, there, apples to apples is a very tough comparison. Now, Norway shut down. Now, what ended up happening? You can look at COVID testing, you can look at death rate from COVID, but those things for a variety of reasons I won't get into are very tough to compare because there's so many variances in how you measure and different things. We won't get into it. But here's a one way that is a proxy. It's not perfect either, but it's a proxy way to measure, which is something called excess mortality. This means you look at the overall death rate, which the country can measure. It's not that hard to measure. Overall death rate, how many people are dying? And compare it to the average death rate you would expect over the past several years. If there are more deaths, during that period than there have been, that's called excess mortality. And it turns out they did this for both Norway and Sweden. For Norway, there were about, I think, what was it, like 600 excess deaths for the period ending like April 19th. Um, so those few months, I think. In Sweden, it was roughly 1,800 excess deaths. Now as a percentage increase over what you expect, that's the difference between a 6% increase in deaths, Norway, and a 34% increase in deaths, Sweden. So what's interesting is then BuzzFeed puts out a piece, and BuzzFeed is very left-leaning. So BuzzFeed, now we've talked about the political spin on science, both on the right and the left. BuzzFeed's very left-leaning, and of course the headline is, you think Sweden's you know, doing well, people are dying more. Okay, so they've already framed what the bias is. Now look at the actual data and the nuance of it. And the truth as always is somewhere in between. Yes, there are more excess deaths percentage-wise. It's not a huge number. The other problem with that number is you haven't counted people who are going to die of COVID who are sick currently and are eventually gonna die. So it's not a perfect number, but it's a snapshot in time. So more people in Sweden are dying. Okay, well, first of all, it turns out if you look at the actual deaths, the majority, like 50% plus, are occurring in nursing homes. So, especially of, of these particular COVID deaths. So it turns out early on, something like 70, they, per, they estimate roughly 75% of nursing homes, care homes in Sweden were affected by the virus. We know already that the elderly and people with other medical conditions who would be in a care home are at higher risk of contracting and dying of this disease. And we know even in the US that it spreads like wildfire, fly, wildfire through nursing homes. So if you're looking at where people are dying, well, yeah, okay, well, there's a specific thing. And the Swedish said we should have, the government said we should have done something quicker early on to protect vulnerable people in nursing homes. So that would have been a targeted intervention. So there's a big piece of the, you know, potentially big piece of the mortality. Now, again, you have to look at the actual numbers and I haven't to see how, what's the real percentage of total mortality there, all right? But the other interesting thing, so then you look at Norway. Well, Norway's doing better, they have less deaths. Aggressive bending of the curve as opposed to voluntary bending of the curve must be more effective, right? Well, think about it this way. Like I said before, 
by bending curve, you're not necessarily reducing the total number of deaths. You're just spreading them out into the future if you don't get a vaccine or a treatment. What if what you're seeing is over time, you're actually gonna find that the, deaths, the death rate is roughly the same? What if over time you find that the economic damage actually causes an increased excess mortality over time in Norway? We don't know, but these are the things, these are the questions you have to ask. So those numbers don't tell the full story in and of themselves. You have to think rationally and critically about the numbers and look at them from all angles. Now, what is the point of bending the curve really? It's to prevent the healthcare system from being overwhelmed. Because if, the, if, you, if you have a line that the healthcare system can tolerate in terms of ICU beds and staffing, et cetera, and you exceed it with number of cases, things get real in a hurry. You saw it happen in Italy. You can see it happen potentially in New York, although the jury's still out. Well, what's gonna happen then? I mean, we certainly exceeded our number of morgue beds in New York, right? So what's happening in Sweden and Norway? Well, both of them haven't exceeded their capacity. Sweden has a very good healthcare system and they have plenty of capacity. So for them, bending the curve really didn't, didn't make a difference in terms of their uh, healthcare capacity. Now, if they had done nothing, it'd be interesting to see how, whether they would have been overwhelmed, right? So this is how you have to think about these things. And I'm not being complete and I have my own biases and I put them out there on the table and I'm telling you these are my biases, but that's how you have to think about it. So um, let's see. Um, the third thing I wanted to talk about is healthcare worker mental health. So there was recently a news story about um, the physician, uh, let me pull her up here, Lorna Breen in New York, who had been on the front lines at New York Presbyterian ER physician by all estimations, highly esteemed 49-year-old uh, and got actually got sick with COVID, wanted to come back. They told her she couldn't come back. Her family took her um, away home and, uh, um, reported that she was very affected and dis detached from the experiences that she'd had and then subsequently died of su died by suicide. Now, this is a tragedy and it speaks to the idea that, listen, and we have no idea whether COVID-19 was the trigger for this. She had no history of mental illness, colleagues never detected anything, but how many people know somebody who died by suicide that you never would have seen it? until in retrospect you go, oh, maybe there was something there. So the problem, the, this speaks to the problem, which is we still have a stigma about mental health in healthcare. We don't wanna talk about it, we don't wanna seek help, we're worried about our license. If we say we have depression or anxiety or suicidal thoughts, if we're going through a spell, because you have to often report that on your relicensing or you know, privileges, hospital privileges, that kind of thing, it's ridiculous, right? And so people worry about that. There's a culture in medicine of suck it up, don't show weakness, right? How did you treat that? I just used Brutane right, just brute force. And 
In this situation now, we're, we're actually seeing clearly, especially among nursing staff who are there with the patients, the most PTSD and real trauma from the experiences they're having, this culture has to change, which means that administration has to support physicians and staff that, that, that are reporting that they're having a difficult time. Because otherwise, it, 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 it's, this is unconscionable. We're gonna lose so many good people to this. And it'll be yet another consequence, an ancillary damage of COVID-19. And hopefully this wakes people up to the idea that we need to destigmatize this, we need better treatment and access to treatment and be able to have conversations. Now we've done a few shows about this. I'm going to try to get um, a, a psychiatrist that has been on the show before to talk about this with us and tools we can use and resources. So stay tuned for that show. All right, now that we've had all that out, let's see if we can look at some comments. Um, there's a lot. Do you think the COVID affected her brain, says Shelly, I think? I missed it, it scrolled so fast. Okay, this is a great question. So today I did an interview with Wes Ely. Uh, he was on the show before, he's a critical care doc out of Vanderbilt and an expert on ICU-related sort of brain, uh, you know, PICS, the so-called post-intensive care syndrome. And he is studying actively what the neurologic effects are of COVID in specific? And that's a great question because there is theory that COVID has effects on the brain. There, you, you, first of all, you can lose sense of smell and taste and that nervous tissue is very close. They found, I think, I don't know if it's a virus or viral damage in brain tissue or neurologic tissue. So. This is a very valid question of what might um, be another thing we have to be concerned with uh, around that. And Sher Shelley says she had, no, or Sherry says she had no history of mental illness, and, and and that's true. But then again, many people don't, uh, who their first presentation is death by suicide. Um, Wendy says everyone who lives through this COVID thing will have PTSD? Question mark. And I don't think so. And when you look, when you look at, and by the way, this is very important. There are certain things that are self-fulfilling prophecies. If you say, you know what, everyone's going to have PTSD from this, that's just simply not true. PTSD is a very specific uh, form of the, f you know, failure to cope with a traumatic event. There are a ton of people who have trauma who are able to, through a combination of whatever genetic resiliency, we don't understand it yet, sense making social connection, God knows what, we don't know what it is, are able to incorporate it as part of who they are and move on without the debilitating effects of the post-traumatic stress disorder, right? So um, I, I, I don't think everybody's gonna get it. I think what's gonna happen is that we're gonna see increases in it and we're gonna have to be able to treat and manage that compassionately uh, and, and also be open and less stigmatizing about you know, how these things uh, um, play out. Um, Mona Autumn, oh my gosh, it's been so lonely to reside in the rational thinking middle. I feel less lonely today. So I said this on my video, like, it's so painful to, to 
try to be in the middle. And I say try because I don't think anybody is just naturally in the middle. I think we all have our biases one way or the other. I mean, I'll put mine on the table. I am a social liberal. Like I think people should be able to do whatever they want socially. Um, I share a lot of liberal uh, moral palette in terms of care versus harm, compassion, those kind of things for people who are suffering injustice. But then I have a lot of conservative palette too. And I think some of that comes from growing up in a very conservative part of California and being having a little libertarian streak. So economically, um, and then these ideas of like, you do have to weigh like the economy and other things like that because they, they matter as well and personal liberty matters. And there are things about these ideas of sanctity versus degradation in the way we think. So I have some of that moral palette too. But then living right in the middle and trying to communicate science is super, super lonely, painful, and anxiety-provoking. And I'll tell you why. Because you sit up at night going, the things I said in that video weren't balanced enough. I took this hardline stance, and in reality, I know that there's more nuance that I didn't say because I was in a flow state talking from my elephant, right? And and it's, it's painful because the certainty of being right that exists when you're all on the left or all on the right or all libertarian or whatever it is, is actually why it's so attractive, those fringes. There's a certainty there, and you are right, and the other person is the devil. And in certainty comes comfort, and I think that's why people seek out confirmation. In whatever study they read, they'll pull confirmation of their own belief. And that's why it's hard being in the middle because you have to think, it takes ATP, it's very hard to do, you get stressed, you worry about that, that when you hear people criticizing what you've said, that they're partially right, and that, that stings because you also want to make sure that you're explaining everything as completely as possible, which is impossible in a video. So there's a lot of that, like when I, I've stopped reading a lot of comments because they just, they're so stressful. <laughs> Cause I know, I know, I know that comment is correct and I know the other comment is correct. And in that, tr in that knowing comes a lot of, mm, it's just much easier to go, America or, uh, you know, tut, 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 we need to, do this because the scientists say it this way. It, it's just much easier to do that. I still don't recommend it though. I'd much rather be in the rational middle. Um, but maybe I'm an outlier. Um, Sherry says, I believe there's more in the middle that, than have the energy to speak up. That's what it is. We don't want to fight the fights. I do, because that's kind of what I have to do. But a lot of people, it's just too exhausting and they'd rather stay quiet or just nod their heads at both sides when they go off. Um, Let's see, um, thank you for everyone who's donating stars, by the way, it helps support the show, and there's a goal on this stars broadcast. If we reach 100,000 total, Nurse Kitty, our met emoji, will do another rant just for you guys. Um, clowns to the left of us, jokers to the right, here I am stuck in the middle with you. Denise Davis, who's a supporter, thank you, Denise, for giving me the opportunity to sing poorly. Um, Donette says, so if we bent the curb, does that mean the same amount of people in high estimated models will die anyways when we open? Great question, Donette, no. Part of the reason the high estimate models estimate so highly is that they take into account overwhelming of the healthcare system. So bending the curve so that you avoid the highest models means that less people die from medical neglect. 
Now, the problem, again, like I said earlier in the show, is that medical neglect is happening because we've shut, we've terrified people. And so they won't come in. And here's, here's a good example. Young people who have asymptomatic COVID are potentially presenting with massive strokes. And the reason theoretically is that COVID causes a hyperclotting state that is still poorly understood. And so someone having symptoms of a stroke is delaying, this has been documented in a few cases now, delaying coming in because they don't wanna get COVID from the hospital. The problem is they already have COVID, not having symptoms until they have a big stroke and then they're scared to come in. And the thing about those big strokes, this is the biggest tragedy, they're in large vessels that feed the brain. Those are treatable if you get in within six hours, ideally, 24 you know, at the worst, but you, you come in and then interventional radiology can go in and yank the clot out or put in anticoagulants, do different things to acutely treat that and save your brain. And people are missing out on that. So this is very, very, very important side effect of generating the amount of fear that we have generated. One of the early episodes we did with Paul Offit that we got a lot of shit for because this is when people were most scared is when we did this episode. And he was saying, hey guys, like we're making, we're terrifying people. Did we really need to shut the schools down, for example, um, when we know that younger people are more resilient to this and will start to generate slow herd immunity when I know as a vaccine maker that the vaccine ain't coming anytime soon. So him just saying that, he got just ostracized. And the truth is, he might well have been right. Um, so, but again, we won't know. Hindsight will be 2020. We're all kind of flying based on modeling that, you know, tells us what we might want to change, but we just don't know yet. Um, let's see where we're at in comments here. Um, eh, let's scroll back a bit. These comments scroll so fast, it's hard to actually pin one down. Hold on. I've always looked at it this, we can't, uh, says Brandy Vanderlei, we can't afford to overwhelm the medical system and a slow spread gives us time to find good treatments. Well, right, Brandy, but the question now, so that's all true. How slow? So Sweden's slow, voluntary lockdown, people behaving like adults, theoretically. Is that slow enough? Or is it Bay Area slow, where they're now making us wear masks on our hiking trails? in the neighborhood where I live. And that to me is just, you're gonna discourage people from exercising. People who have asthma are not gonna go out because they're gonna have trouble breathing through the mask. You're starting to cause harm and you're just, at this point, I start to wonder, Not okay, you guys wanna hear a little bias here? Let me just go off for a second. Public health people are shit on constantly. You know, it's like the hardest thing to do, including infection preventionists, people like that. I mean, these are odd birds to begin with. And I say this with love because I know many of them and they're wonderful, amazing people doing great work. But now it's kind of like, ooh, now is our time, right? Now is our chance. Now this is, again, there's no science here. This is me and my elephant just, just free balling. Now is our time We've trained all our life for this, okay? Let's do some stuff, and people are actually listening. Okay, so what happens? Correctly, we shut down. Correctly, we weigh, you know, what do we do? Social distancing. Then you start to throw on cloth masks, and it's like, mm, oh, is that really? Uh, and then masks on a trail. Okay, now we're getting a little crazy. 
And it's just like, okay, now, okay, pump the brakes a little. Okay, we get it. You guys are going, this is your thing. But I think it's a little too much now. So maybe let's, let's just consider some rational thought. And, and I think it's funny because ultimately you could interpret what those Bakersfield docs said as something like that, except the science was so wacky. And for all the reasons I said, it was just cringy to me and to many others, including the American Academy of uh, Emergency Medicine and the American College of Emergency Physicians, two big emergency physician groups. Uh, and by the way, I've spoken for both those groups. So full disclosure, good people, great ER docs represent a big chunk of the emergency to, uh, physician profession, um, basically had to put out a joint statement and they don't agree, agree about anything. They're kind of competing bodies saying, listen, these two clowns don't science correctly, have clear financial bias and are saying things that are not validated by public health officials in their own community while they lied and said that they, that the public health officials agree. That was a straight lie. So I think it's important to have different voices. And oh, by the way, one thing I should say, that YouTube pulled that clip and removed it from YouTube, their hour conversation, is to me one of the most egregious, and, you know, they're a private company, they can do what they want, but that is bone chilling. Like who else are they gonna deplatform? Like let them speak and then let rational people argue with them. You don't shut down speech in this country. Now you could argue, oh, they're yelling fire in a crowded theater. And I've said this about anti-vaxxers, but still, even I wouldn't be like, well, YouTube should deplatform them. No, let them speak. I'll deplatform them, meaning they have no place on my, I ban them from my platform because I don't need to give them my platform. They have all these other platforms. But again, and again, YouTube isn't bound by free speech. That's the government. That's a government thing. So YouTube can do whatever it wants, but it's terrifying that they're pulling videos, right? Because we all know too that YouTube has its own political leanings. And it doesn't matter whether you agree or disagree with their leanings, that, that should really be concerning when you have a platform that many people rely on to get information out on all sides of it. Now, you know, clear hate speech and things like that, but how do you even judge that? Right? Who's arbiting that? It's very, very tough, you guys, because sometimes things I say could be considered hate speech against anti-vaxxers. Are they gonna ban me from YouTube? They could. Um, yeah, so that's pretty much what I got, guys. Now, here's my ask of you. Let's try to be rational actors in this, especially as healthcare professionals, which many of us are. Let's have rational conversations and nothing is off the table. You can have crazy ideas and put them out there, but understand when we're at the limits of science and don't make black or white statements that you can't back up with really good data, right? That's very important. That's the nature of this conversation. Science is not a dogma, it's a process. It's a way of looking at the world to find answers, right? So that being said, do me another favor. If you haven't become a supporter and you want to, to get some other live videos with me where we just chit chat and do crazy stuff, uh, hit me up. You also get a discussion group that's closed to the public only for supporters where it's curated by me. Uh, so there's not a lot of BS. There's some BS that I let through because I like it, but not a lot. And leave a comment because that does a lot. Share the video, tell your friends. That is even better than the $4.99 a month, honestly, that keeps our business open because you know, what's my financial disclosures of this, 
I, we generate revenue from speaking engagements and ad revenue and things like that. All of that gets suppressed when the economy collapses, just like you guys are suffering. So those of you that support our show make it possible for me to continue to pay my staff without furloughing them and continue to bring videos to you. So it means so much to me that you care enough to be able to do that. So I just wanted to end the show by thanking my supporters and thanking everyone who watches the show and shares it and is rational in the world. All right, guys, I love you. Stay safe and we out. Peace. Hey, it's Dr. Z. Thanks for getting through the whole episode. That's a huge accomplishment. <laughs> and so at this point, I just got to ask you for a few favors because it just helps us so much if you leave a review on your favorite podcast platform and subscribe. It, it just really helps the algorithm to get this message out to others. The second thing is email me, hello at zdogmd.com. I get all these emails personally. I can't respond to them all, but I need to hear your voice because especially on podcast, we don't have a comment section. And I want to hear how this episode affected you, what you'd like to hear in the future, what you think we got wrong, what we think we got right, anything, anything, or just say hi. So that's really powerful. And the third thing is financially, it helps us a lot to support the show in any way you can. And if you go to zdogmd.com forward slash supporters, you can join our supporter tribe on your favorite platform, YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, wherever. What that will get you on those platforms is live shows with me that are exclusive for supporters and access to our Zoom meetings where we talk about awakening realization and we share with each other our own experience. It's a powerful group effect. It's a community, really. And we support and love each other and share, again, through our own experience, how we're waking up. So, and that that ripples out into systems, into transforming healthcare and education and government. So it st really starts with us. So join us there if you can. Again, zdogmd.com forward slash supporters. And I'm so grateful to have you with us.